0: You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created
1: by Santis Health.
0: Hi everyone, my name is Peter and I'm a principal here at Santis Health. Today we are joined by an incredible panel of guests to discuss the agility and adaptability of Canada's health charities sector. We are so fortunate to have a great panel of guests joining today from the Health Charities Coalition of Canada, ALS Canada and Diabetes Canada. Elizabeth Baugh is the CEO of Ovarian Cancer Canada and Chair of the Health Charities Coalition of Canada, otherwise known as HCCC. Tammy Moore is the CEO of ALS Canada and has been involved in the ALS community for well over a decade. And Dr. Seema Nagpal is the Vice President of Science and Policy at Diabetes Canada, where she guides their research funding programs. Thank you all for joining us today. so let's look back to uh, March of 2020, and and Elizabeth, why don't we why don't we kind of start start the discussion with you? And I'm really hoping this can be a discussion rather than uh, an aggressive Q and A. But walk me through what happened uh, to your charity and and to your other hat as chair of of HCCC, um, and also kind of it would be helpful for the listener listener to kind of thread in there what your charity does and why it's important for the. Health of Canadians that you're able to operate at a high high level uh, on a daily basis.
1: Thank you, Peter. So Ovarian Cancer Canada is dedicated to improving the outcomes of women who have ovarian cancer in Canada by supporting research, providing support to women so that they receive the very best care possible, and also through promoting uh, knowledge and information about preventing the disease itself with no diagnosis or screening test, prevention is is really the best that we have for the disease at this time. So we packed up our desks on uh, March 13th and headed home thinking maybe two weeks. And I think as many, many other of the member charities of HCCC, there are 25 members, we didn't at that time anticipate the change, the dramatic change that was going to happen to our sector over the next weeks and months. I think the first thing was learning to work virtually very quickly and then having to look at the financial impact as many people had events and plans for meetings of patients and stakeholders, donors coming up imminently. They had to move very, very quickly to pivot, to change how those events were going to happen as we were all told to lock down, distance and isolate ourselves from others. So it has been a time of great change. Um, It has had a dramatic effect on revenues for the health charities and our 25 members. Um, We represent a $650 million industry and support uh, over 2.9 million patients across the, the coalition, across the country. And so it is a health charities really are part of the fabric of Canadian society and with decreasing revenues because we couldn't have events, with um, difficulty accessing for those of us who deliver direct-to-patient services, uh, it's been a, a challenge on many, many levels.
0: Tammy, walk us through um, what this meant for the ALS Society, what it meant for uh, those who uh, are, were diagnosed with uh, ALS during the pandemic, their treatment, and, and the experience that your organization faced Um, with the world uh, all but shutting down a year ago today?
2: absolutely. So we were actually in Ottawa with our community on March 9th and 10th, and we were doing an advocacy hill day. So we had a team of clinicians, researchers, people who are living with ALS, volunteers and staff who were there to be able to bring forward the issues of our community. And right now we're very much focused on access to therapies as a consideration as we're finally starting to see New therapies come to market and so as Elizabeth indicated on March 13th when we headed home, it was one thing to start to deal with a remote working environment but the other thing was the reality of somebody living with ALS and the isolation that they would already be feeling due to the, the disease and then the concern around what would pandemic mean for our community and so within Ontario ALS Canada helps to support people who are living with ALS and immediately our regional managers started to connect with every one of our almost a thousand families who are living with ALS at any time and over the next two and a half weeks our regional managers were in touch with the community to be able to make sure they understood that they weren't alone to be able to help identify what are the issues that they're facing what are we going to need to look to next to be able to provide information about at that time we were still wondering what could be the impact on somebody living with ALS if they were to get COVID. And so we were doing just a ton of work in terms of being able to connect. We also take on a very specific role as a convener and a facilitator. So we were bringing together the clinicians from across the country to say, what are you seeing in your clinics? What are the concerns that are raising? And it started to feel a bit like whack-a-mole as we were identifying new advocacy issues every single day that we would have to address. And at some points it's been, Difficult for people to even get a diagnosis of ALS because of access to the healthcare system. And then as they're navigating their disease of progressive paralysis, where you're losing your function, your ability to move your voluntary muscles, to scratch your head, to be able to um, swallow, to be able to eat, in fact, to even be able to breathe. Having limited access to healthcare practitioners who may be in a hospital environment has been very challenging for our community. So we've been identifying the issues and helping to advocate in that regard as well. So there's been considerable effort. And then even as we're looking at vaccine rollout, consideration is how can we make sure that the ALS population is considered a priority? And beyond that, how can we make sure that people who are challenged by mobility issues can get the vaccine within their home environment or their personal support workers are being vaccinated? So just a myriad of, uh, issues that are arising on a regular basis.
0: Seema, let's talk about research, and and I think this is important because it's it's often, I don't think, understood by the general public and policymakers and funders the vital importance of maintaining research. So it, it, explain explain to our listeners what what happened to. Um, the research community specifically, whether it's through Diabetes Canada or broader than that, what happened when the pandemic hit um, uh, and, and how did you begin to navigate that?
3: Thanks, so, so at Diabetes Canada, we um, we lead the fight against diabetes by preventing the onset and consequences of diabetes, helping those affected by diabetes to live healthy lives and working to find a cure. Each of those things are supported by knowledge and evidence that has been studied um, through scientists and and their research. And while we all are well acquainted with the impact of the pandemic on the health and well-being of Canadians and on Canada, the impact is is obviously devastating. Um, But we're going to come out of this pandemic through research and discovery and what And that's how we will find our way out of it with discovering a vaccine um, and getting enough people vaccinated um, we will find our way out of out of this pandemic but but the risk of morbidity and mortality from conditions uh, other conditions is is unrelenting so in the past year we've had people continue to be diagnosed with diabetes continue to experience a stroke and continue to die prematurely um, due to causes unrelated to covid Um, And yet there's been a redirection of the investments towards COVID research, and that's to the detriment of non-COVID-19 research. So the magnitude and extent of uh, that redirection of funding for COVID-19 away from other conditions, the impact of the lockdown and and how that will um, influence diabetes and and other non-COVID research really remains to be seen, but certainly we've heard of lapses in funding for lines of discovery that were promising. Um, We've heard of labs that are struggling because scientists and their staff didn't have access to their research during the lockdown. Animal experiments that were halted and sometimes that had to be stopped totally, Um, and so now that that knowledge is lost. Science just can't start and stop, and and especially foundational science where each each new discovery, each step, builds on the next step. Um, clinical trials were unable to recruit patients to 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 um, evaluate new treatments. Um, staff had to be laid off, and now that expertise has has been lost, and people will have to be rehired and retrained over time. so so there's a huge, um, a loss in the research community that uh, that will take a large amount of time to to uh, regain um, and, and the impact I think um, we're starting we've certainly seen it over the last year, but we will see it for for many years to come. Um, from a health charities point of view, with our uh, decline in funding and the challenges and choices that that we've all had to face, um, we've seen that competitions had to be cancelled for funding of research, and and in some cases, um, commitments to funding I've I've heard were were unable to be upheld. Um, so those things obviously have a large impact on researchers and the research that was underway. Um, We also know that health charities in particular are instrumental in supporting new investigators, so trainees and people early in their career depend on health charities to get them started, to give them a foundation for for their research, and then they often use that foundation to leverage funds um, in the future. So when health charities are required to pull back their funding, we know that a whole generation of researchers um, may pursue other careers or pursue careers in other therapeutic areas. So it's uh, it's a loss uh, both both in the short term and in the long term. The, the true impact, which uh, which will remain to be seen.
0: How and we can open this up, but how did you uh, how did your organization? tackle that in real time, what happened?
3: Well, I mean, I I think different organizations, depending on the decline um, that they saw, uh, had to make different types of choices. So fortunately, we at Diabetes Canada were able to honor the commitments that were made to our funded researchers and um, and we were able to to see that through but we were. um, We had to postpone our 2020 competition and um, and we'll be holding uh, a competition again now in 2021. So, um, like I said, different choices needed to be made but uh, it, it was difficult because. Uh, The revenues declined and and researchers were struggling and unfortunately we weren't able to help in a way that um, that we would have liked, given given their own uh, context in which we were functioning.
0: I don't know, Danny, maybe you can help um, kind of connect some of the dots with with the organization. So, uh, you know, the ALS Society isn't isn't necessarily a essential government agency. But you find yourself in this space where you provide a a service that without it, um, people would be left, frankly, adrift and less better off. and And how so? How did you connect all those dots through what was a um, terrible year?
2: Yeah, I actually bring up a really important aspect, Peter. And in many ways, for our organization at ALS Canada, we were able to step in when, in many ways, the healthcare system withdrew. And so even for our organization, we're helping to provide equipment so that people can stay in their homes safely. We're talking about basic equipment that you wouldn't think about, but hospital beds and wheelchairs and ceiling lifts and things that people need to be able to keep themselves safe as well as their caregivers. And so it was challenging because we were working with our independent vendors to be able to make sure people could get the equipment that they required and doing it as safely as possible. At a time when we were seeing, uh, to Sim's point, this massive withdrawal of, you know, at first, what will it mean and for the events that we host and the ways that we fundraise, because for many of our health charities, it is only by donor funding that we have received any funds. That you were seeing this massive decline, and so there's been this critical balance that we've been trying to play in maintaining those services that people require. And as I said, you know, in the beginning, stepping in to make sure that people weren't isolated to make sure their needs were addressed, the information that we could be able to provide to them brought together by, um, from the clinicians and others. So it, it has been incredibly challenging. And for our community, when the reality is ALS has existed for you know, a century that we can identify, and yet we aren't as far ahead as we would like in terms of even an understanding for the disease And when our community has watched massive redeployment of resources to be able to deal with this reality and everybody agrees it's a a challenge Um, but how can we can how can we then think about it in terms of the unmet need of people living with ALS and it's I think through COVID as well it's also identified a lot of the challenges in the existing system even in terms of drug discovery or uh, drug approval and reimbursement and how that's but they've had to go around their own systems to be able to meet the need for COVID. So can we keep that innovation um, to be able to meet the future needs of people living with ALS and other diseases as well because it's recognized that the system has been broken.
0: How have um how have you gotten through the last year? How's your team gotten through the last year? And and not necessarily just Tammy, Elizabeth, Seema, feel free to chime in, but How do you you navigate these uncharted waters with your team and how have they taken it and and what does the toll mean?
2: It's been very challenging. It's been challenging from the standpoint that we were fortunate, you know, we had deployed technology beforehand so that our team was ready to go with it and we were able to turn the switch. It's been challenging from the standpoint that our, our team members are helping people to navigate, you know, the worst time in their lives and they're doing it in the midst of this massive uncertainty. But it's also brought our team together. And so we found ways to actually be stronger because of our team environment and the culture that we've built out of it. But I would have to say that team's getting really tired because, you know, even when we go into fundraising, you're not just uh, organizing one event. And it's not like we can pull out the playbook that we did two years ago and say, okay, well, we're going to host the walks as we've done in the past. Here's the playbook for it. It was on the fly, no, you're going to now go to a hybrid, here's the new event. And what we're seeing, and you know, it was one thing to experience the pandemic um, of the past year, it's another thing to experience the longevity of the pandemic going forward. So now as we're looking at events, you're looking at what would be the live event, what is the overlay of COVID into that event, so the protocols required to be able to do it, and then simultaneously, you're doing a third planning for what would a virtual event be? And how are you doing all of those at the same time? So the additional stretch and stress on our teams has been very significant. So you're dealing with the emotional, you're dealing with the realities of work, and this at a time when people are dealing with this within their own homes as they're trying to help people, uh, uh, trying to navigate their own realities. At the same time, they're trying to help people in these very, very desperate situations. So it has been a major challenge.
1: Yeah, I would have to echo what Tammy said. It's required incredible resiliency from the team. And as Tammy mentioned, many of them, um, some living alone themselves, so feeling quite isolated over time. Uh, Some with small children, they're trying to look after them while the schools are are closed, Uh, you know, caring about elderly parents who are in retirement homes, which of course we've been very concerned about. So it has been a a time that has required Working from home wasn't less work. It was perhaps longer hours, more intense, more things to juggle. I would have to say our team has been resilient, as I mentioned, but we've had the opportunity to offer people a chance to learn a new skill, Um, This whole virtual technology piece has made us reach and stretch and and we've had to really be brave (laughs) with some of our new offerings uh, and trying things that were not proven. And so I think that has been one silver lining um, for a small team that they have gotten to collaborate differently, work with other team members and offer services that have brought our ovarian cancer community closer than we've been able to, perhaps
3: with only face-to-face events. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add. I think both Tammy and Elizabeth have said um, much of it, it's been challenging. Um, and you think of the type of person who works at a charity, These are people who are deeply committed to the cause um, and to to try to do that when you yourself are living with so much uncertainty and and worry about your own health in the middle of a pandemic, as well as your family and and the people you're trying to serve, it's it's very taxing. It's very challenging. Um, But if there is a silver lining, it's that people are also very grateful for being able to give to a community in the midst of all of all of this. Despair. There's a there's a genuine sense, I think, of uh, feeling good about what you're able to do when in a, in a positive way and able to contribute. So um, it's
0: been a challenge for sure. I I also kind of want to ask: um, Is there anything that's happened in the past year? A policy change from government? Something within your organization? Is there something that is there a, a something that changed that you hope that we can keep? Is there something that advanced that perhaps didn't advance before we were in a time of crisis that we needed to move at exponential speed and and something that we need to hold on to and and build upon coming out of the pandemic.
2: Happy to to identify that for our community being able to provide services uh, and being able to bring people together for support groups. When we were doing them in person part of the challenge is you're dealing with people that have mobility issues. And so being able to get out to a support group can be challenging. And then you're also dealing with the reality of a geography. Well, if you are early on in your disease progression with ALS versus somebody who is later on in their disease progression, you actually have very different needs. And so through COVID, we have actually been able to do our online support groups quite differently in the striation of disease, but also the segmentation of different people in different groups. So. ALS. although the 3000 Canadians who are given that diagnosis, they're facing the very harsh realities on their own life. The reality is the concentric circles out from there are significant. And so you look, we talk about people affected by ALS to be more encompassing of their caregiver of their families. So we now have support groups for siblings and if there is a reality of familial ALS where it's generation to generation and generations can be wiped out. That's a really important aspect. And so we're going to be able to carry this forward into the future, to be able to have this virtual offering that will be different as a result of this. And I think that there are things like that, that we'll be taking forward.
1: The same, very same for us, 3,100 women are diagnosed with ovarian cancer every year. And most of the Education events, symposia, support groups that we would be part of, involved in, are in urban centers, and uh, we did our first virtual symposium, a national virtual symposium in the fall, and we had more attendees than we've ever had, and many women telling us they'd never been able to travel, it was too far to go to an event we were having, or they weren't well enough, And so we had people from coast to coast saying, I've never spoken to someone before. I've never met someone else with my subtype of ovarian cancer. And so we do believe this is something that we will keep as part of future offerings, blending it, of course, as we are able to with face-to-face meetings too.
0: Seema, can the same be said for the research community? Can um, uh, Can you replace some of what was done before Virtually or is that a lot of in- person work that you just can't replicate
3: well I think the connections that were forged as a result of not being able to be in person are are something that we'd like to take forward um, you know some some research can be done um, remotely much research cannot so i, I don't I don't know that um, that you know that you can form exper- perform experiments uh remotely when when you work in a lab but um certainly the the connections the communication um, the ability to to you know speak with or connect with people around the world it was always kind of there but the um, the forced connection virtually has probably made those paths a little a little more worn and a little more um, accessible if you will uh, so you know i think that those things will continue the one example that i can think of right away is that we were able to offer our annual conference a professional conference virtually this year which was is which was different. We had never even thought about um, about doing that previously, and it was it was really successful. People commented um, on how they were able to come to conference at uh, obviously a much lesser cost, but also um, when they wouldn't have been able to afford that much time away from work, or uh, it was just you know it was more um, uh, more convenient to to access that education uh, from you know your laptop rather than having to travel across the country. So that that dissemination of information. Information, that education is more accessible. And I think that we'll see that blended nature um, going forward.
0: For the record, I'm still getting on, I'm getting on a plane and going to the conference for the record, once this is all open. <laughs> um, if there, I, I was, this, this, this question, I, I have one more question after this, but if there was one thing that the federal government or provincial governments, you're in a weird place because your charities work with governments across the board, but if there, was, if there was something governments had in place before the pandemic, or, or maybe better I should ask, what, it, what is the thing governments need to have in place that would help charities through another pandemic? What do you wish had happened prior to this that wasn't done? Uh, and, and what sort of impact would that have had on the last year, You know, hindsight being 2020?
1: I think if there had been a program focused on the health charity sector, Uh, Sadly, we fell through many of the cracks of funding that was available, and so uh, charities were forced to close offices, let staff go, where the wage subsidy was helpful. There was a huge demand for our services, in many cases, helping people understand about COVID, accessing vaccines, getting uh, treatment in clinics when they weren't supposed to be going to the hospital. Uh, So we had a big burden of work, but no funding to deliver it. And I think if there had been a program that had looked at the patient service piece, as well as the research, which Sema has described so well as not being taken on by anybody else, that would have Helped us continue to be as strong and uh, deliver as much important service as Canadians are relying on us for.
2: I think in adding to that actually would be a more formalized structure with government because we are there connected as health charities into the communities and into the lives of Canadians who are dealing with disease. And so if the government already had a formalized structure to be able to work with charities they would more clearly understand the value because it's not just in COVID. It was before this that, you know, as I attend conferences and they're talking about the cost of uh, disease or the healthcare system, they so often fail to measure the the inputs of health charities into that. And so by not having that calculation there, it's often on un- the unseen work that's going forward. And so if there was a more formalized structure, I think that that would also help. One government would have had that immediate input um, and feedback from the populations of what matters and they wouldn't have to rely on us trying to go forward and bringing these, as I mentioned, playing whack-a-mole one at a time to bring these issues forward. There would also be more formal recognition then of what it is that we're delivering and to Elizabeth's point, there would likely be financial compensation because I don't think that charities should have to be performing this work. Is it right that a charity is providing hospital beds and wheelchairs and ceiling lifts to people? we're providing inputs into the drug approval and reimbursement process to make sure that the voices of Canadians are brought forward into those process, into that process, and yet there's no compensation for that work and all of that effort that it takes to be there. So COVID has highlighted a lot of these breaks within our systems, but they've always been there. And so what I would like to see going forward is that that formal recognition is there, and I think that that would Help to bring forward a lot of the other mechanisms that are required to make sure charities have the appropriate supports. Um, and as much as we're very appreciative don- of donors, it shouldn't just be donors. There should be some basic system uh, supports there to start with.
3: I couldn't agree more. Um, the The value that charities bring is under recognized by governments, and and I would say by society. Um, you know, when you when you think about our our role is to highlight. In my case, um, the importance of of diabetes care um, for people living with diabetes, or prevention, um, or even research related to um, improving the quality of life and ultimately a cure. But but I think the, the point is that that we're trying to highlight what is important and what is necessary for that patient population. And who else can do that? It's not governments. Um, and and it's it's uh, individuals can't do it alone. So when we talk about research, you know, increasing funding to other government agencies is necessary but insufficient, because the type of research that we support, we we, we try to support research that is important to what patients feel is important. We try to reflect um, the value that patients place on certain outcomes when we fund our research uh, so that that voice is actually heard in the programs that are provided and the advocacy that we do and, and the research that we fund. If you remove that or if you diminish that, there, there's there's a significant um, loss to the patient journey yet that they, that they're on in their disease process. And I, I think that's, that's so under-recognized and, um, and therefore it fell, uh, through the cracks. And even now, I'm not sure it's as well-recognized because it's, it's not, um, you know, we're in a crisis, we're still in crisis mode. So we're not really recognizing the magnitude of the loss. And I think we will continue to feel that loss for, for many years to come.
0: So if um, you had 20 seconds with the Prime Minister and Minister Freeland to say what you need in the federal budget that's coming out in a handful of weeks, what, what, would, that, what would that be?
1: Well, I think we've put in a request for $131 million to fill the gap in patient services and the research funding. But to Tammy's point, I think we need a long-term fix that recognizes the value that the health charities bring to the healthcare of Canadians.
0: Tammy, Seema, anything you want to add there?
2: I would absolutely agree with Elizabeth. And I think that's going been a, wonderful aspect about COVID too is the alignment between all of the health charities and our common understanding and expectation. Yes, there have been a lot of changes as a result of COVID in terms of the funding that we had to make in the immediate. Seema has spoken very well about some of the challenges for research, but it's also the ongoing and long-term requirements that are necessary for health charities going forward.
3: And I I think that, you know, each one of us could speak specifically about the the gaps that we've uh, we'd like to see filled with (laughs) with uh, funding from from the prime minister in the next budget. Um, But but I think both Elizabeth and Tammy have highlighted what the health charities um, generally with infrastructure um, support and, and recognition of the value that we bring and therefore um kind of a safety net for for the charities going forward. That's that's critical. Um, and each individual individual organization, I think, has specific asks that that um, need to be addressed both regardless of COVID, but especially in, in COVID and uh, the spotlight that the pandemic has placed on these chronic conditions is Is uh, is pretty pretty strong. So uh, there's been lots of things I think that have just been um, you know just exacerbated by the pandemic that really need to be addressed uh, quickly.
0: Thank you, all three of you, Elizabeth, Tammy, Steema. I I do believe that the health charity sector is one of the one of the most unsung heroes of this pandemic. You're quietly working away, supporting patient groups, trying to protect gains and research that have been made. There has just not been enough attention to the work that you do uh, before the pandemic, and especially during the pandemic. So I hope uh, that those who listen to this enjoyed it, share it around, and and make it known the the work that you do and and support your vision and support the the people that are living with diseases every day. So thank you. Thanks for listening.
2: You can find this episode and more on our website at santishealth.ca and on our Twitter at santashealth. This has been from the Burgundy Chairs.